Welcome to the wonderful world of wine, exploring all things wine with you. We are your hosts, Mark Lenzi and Kim Simone, and every week we explore topics in the wine world and bring them to you. Hi, folks, and welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are Mark and Kim, and every week we talk to you about trending topics in the wine world that we find through social media and through website articles. And this week, we have some very, I think, interesting topics on those similar ideas versus about social media, about marketing. Uh, but first, we like to talk about what did we Google this week about wine? So any interesting things that you discovered in the wonderful world of Google? Well, Kim, I was looking at stock market information. Oh, that's different. Which is, yeah, it is different for me. <laughs> um, but I, I found the top five beverage companies who have been investing in cannabis companies. Oh. So a lot of people don't know, but a lot of these beverage companies are going heavy into seeking the trend in cannabis. So the top five companies doing that are Heineken, which is number one, Constellation, Molson, which is also Molson Coors, so another beer company. And then a Canadian liquor retailer is also going big. And I can't say the name. I think it's Alakani or something like that. But hmm. So those are the top five companies who are looking at the future of going to somehow combine their alcohol with cannabis. So what about you, Kim? What Heineken you always smells a little skunky to me yeah, yeah. anyway. So that I think would be perfectly natural. Good point. Good point. <laughs> what about you? Um, I Googled uh, grape varieties from Greece. So I am doing a, uh, a wine tasting this weekend around Greek wines. So I wanted to make sure that I was diversified enough and have different styles and different grape varieties so that we could taste a wide variety of Greek wines and found some really cool stuff. So I actually have been drinking Greek wine really since I got into wine. Uh, some of the earliest red wines that became favorites uh, were from the region of Nemea in Greece, which produces really beautiful red wine sort of similar in style to a Merlot. So I've got one of those and there are some real lovely white wines uh, and then some other red ones. So I've got like one from Crete and I've got a bunch from the mainland. Um, I have one from Santorini. So there's a lot of interesting uh, Greek wines out there and I'm very excited to explore them uh, with my group this weekend. Sounds fun. I wish I could pronounce them a lot better. I drink <laughs> a lot more. And at least they're, you know, not necessarily always written in the Greek alphabet. So on to the topic of social media marketing in wine. We found really interesting information about some legal rules that are changing for what is allowed in social media posts regarding wine and wine promotions. Now, this was specific to California, but with the web and with internet and with social media being sort of borderless, I, I kind of feel like this has applications or could be influential to to other parts of not just the U.S., but the world as well. So this one is very California-specific, but I think it does bring up some topics that are fairly universal. Yeah, it was related in a way to Massachusetts because they have the same three-tier 
distribution system. So it was talking about something that wasn't allowed under the three-tier system as a state law in California. Right. So Kim, tell our listeners what was the big change. That may surprise a lot of people. I know. So what was going on was that there was a rule in place that said that it's not supposed to be legal for a winery or a distributor, so maybe an importer if you're bringing in wines from another country, or a winery if you're growing grapes and making wine in California, to promote a specific event at a specific location. So a winery is not supposed to be giving preferential treatment to any specific place that is selling their wine. So they're not supposed to do social media posts about, say, wine dinners or visits by the winemaker to a particular place because then that's seen as sort of, un- that's a good way to put it, you know, they're they're helping out a particular retailer and giving them the benefit of their presence that another retailer wouldn't be getting. And I'm sh- I know that you yeah. see similar things here as far as a-, a distributor isn't supposed to give preferential treatment to any one particular restaurant or any one particular retailer. Yeah. So it's almost like a pay to play. And my understanding was you could say I'm having a wine dinner at Kim Simone store or restaurant, but you couldn't post pictures or videos. Mm -hmm. So you could say I'm having it there, but you couldn't elaborate with with social media posts with pictures or or, or take videos of the event. And like make it a big part of your like marketing plan. Yeah. So people are probably thinking, well, that doesn't make sense. But then if you look at it at the point of a a restaurant or retailer, if Kim has a restaurant and I have a restaurant and a winemaker is going to Kim's place all the time to promote their wines and having dinners and they're saying, okay, come to Kim's, I'm here. I'm promoting my wines and I sell it at my restaurant, then I don't get the same treatment as Kim's getting because it's getting posted or, or they're putting video or picture. So now they said, okay, you can, we'll allow you to, to now put uh, pictures of the events, but they still won't allow them to put videos right. of the yeah, event, so now which is still interesting. It's photos, but not videos. Yeah. So it still kind of limits them for social media. You couldn't go live Facebook and that type of right, thing. Right. So but like, think of something like Instagram. If you don't have the corresponding visual story to tell, it, it that's like, it's a whole platform that you can't even take advantage of because you're not allowed to do anything that has to do with pictures for for events and for sort of promotional activities. Yeah, so. isn't it funny, Kim, you mentioned the Instagram because we just talked about talking about why is interest Instagram so bad in the industry, in the wine industry. And <laughs> maybe it's because they were afraid to do anything. In, in a lot of it is based obviously out of California, but maybe people were afraid to do things because they didn't know what went over the line as far as promotion. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I mean, this is a big thing. But I mean, it's related way back to Prohibition days when they first ended Prohibition. They said, okay, you can't do this, you can't do that. No one's ever challenged. I think a lot of people did it anyway, but it wasn't legal. And now they're saying, okay, finally, this is stupid. You can do it. So I just thought it was interesting, and I don't believe there's any law like that in Massachusetts. But Not that it, I've ever heard of. It is interesting that it could be considered a pay-to-play. So you, mm-hmm. you're basically getting advertising that no one else is getting, or I can see it. Yeah. I can see it, but it, it doesn't help if you're doing an event and you can't visually see the winemaker's picture or the venue. or Yeah. It's and you know, I, I think about when I was in distribution, and it never, I think, would have occurred to me to not have the ability to say oh hey I'm in one of my accounts and doing a wine dinner or I take pictures of it and I want to post it on my social media I honestly it was before social media though so (laughs) things certainly are different now but I I wouldn't even have thought that this is a thing but I, I guess it does make sense that if you're 
if you're a winery and a, a number of restaurants are selling your product and have your wines on their wine list and you give preferential treatment to just one, then yeah, then that certainly can be viewed as, hey, they're getting extras that nobody else is. I was thinking California. Every time I hear California, there's a tax on everything. I'm surprised they just didn't say, <laughs> they didn't just post a picture, it. we'll just tax you a little bit more. Oh, that's you know? funny. They put tax on Twinkie, everything out there. So I'm surprised it wasn't a tax-based thing. But interesting <laughs> story. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and we are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. If you'd like to get more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. And if you'd like to follow past episodes of our show, please find us on iTunes or SoundCloud at The Wonderful World of Wine. So next, we're going to talk about an article that was in Wine Enthusiast magazine talking about old vines make great wine. And Kim, let's first talk about a lot of times our listeners will see old vines on a label and the regulation or the terms behind it before we discuss. I'm so glad you brought this up because this is something that comes up in our, especially in our label classes. You know, there are a lot of these terms that are regulated and that you, you know, you can only use them in certain circumstances. But then there are a lot of other terms, especially for American wines that are not regulated. And old vines is one of those terms. So, so the, the term old vines really doesn't have any legal meaning. Like you can put it on your bottle of wine and nobody can stop you, even if your grape vines are only, say, 10 years old. But when we think about old vine wines, we tend to think of them as at least 25 years old, maybe 35 or even older. And the whole point of marketing a wine as having come from older vines is that as grape vines age, they produce fewer grapes, but they produce more concentrated, more flavorful, better quality wine from those grapes. So if you're looking for wine that has a lot of concentration and you pick up a bottle of old vines wine, hopefully that is what you'll be getting in that bottle. I'm glad you mentioned, Kim. What? So are you saying your definition, personal definition of old vine would be 25, 30 years old? Because yeah. that's what's kind of I wanted yeah. to ask you what you define it as. See, I think when I hear old vine, I always think old world. Like it's old, oh, really? old vine because it's been around hundreds, thousands of years. Oh, I don't think but of then, it that way at all. Yeah, but then when you, when you look at wine in general, I mean, there's, there's, we'll talk about coming up, but there's wines from the, you know, 18, 1900s in the United States too. So mm-hmm. old vine also. Yeah, I think of them as age of the grape, but there, there is, there's, it's more to it than, oh, sorry, not the age of the grape, the age age of the vines. But there's more to it than that too. You know, it's a lot of it has to do with how that grapevine was propagated. And, you know, is it part of a system that has been around for a really long time? And we see not just individual old vines, but like old vineyards and places where where wine has been made for a really, really long time. So it's 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 pretty cool. And you talked about as the vines get older, they produce less fruit, but it's more of a concentrated fruit. And I think the listeners should also know that these roots, I mean, if you have a, just Google an old vine and see what it actually looks like, it looks like a tree. It does. Right? It's I mean, all the, gnarled it's and like... a phenomenal It uh, kind of looks right? like an old apple tree. You know, when apple trees get old, they yeah. kind of look very yeah. similar. So it sort of looks like an old apple tree. So what happens, and we had a great explanation of this from a producer in Lodi, California, 
California. So the roots, as a vine is growing, the roots will search out the water. So if, for instance, in Lodi, the root would go 20 feet to find the water table. And then over the years, over 100 years, the water table dropped to, what was it, 130 feet? Yeah. So now these vines that are over 100 years old, their roots are 100-something feet in the ground searching out the water source. So that's what you're looking at if you see these old vines, not just what's above ground you're seeing, but the root system underneath is the key to the vine. So just very interesting. And you mentioned, Kim, for listeners to seek out old vine, but be careful people using it in a bad way, saying it's old vine and it's four years old. Don't think you're going <laughs> to get the same fruit or taste from a, a tr- really old, old vine. So... Uh- Honestly, there's really no way for you to tell from the label if it says Which old is vines. Sad, right? It is sad because yeah. I think it's such like a romantic term. I mean, unless somewhere else on the label they're telling you that these are from 50 year old vines or 60 year old vines, or you do your own research and you Google the winery and you see what they're actually putting in the bottle. But yeah, and this it, is oh, some this European, is one of those kind of buyer beware. It can be regulated in Europe. There's some they can't say unless it's 30, 35, whatever. But in the United States, we're talking it's not regulated. So. Kim, let's talk about, they They mentioned a few areas with old vine and mm-hmm. some vineyards. I thought we'd just briefly mention some of the ones they, they said. They they mentioned Barossa in uh, South Australia has some vines dating back to 1847. Mm-hmm. And in this area, we're talking uh, Shiraz. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of these vines that are from the mid-1800s. So going on over 150 years old, 160, 170 years old, year old vine from all over the place. So often we associate, I think, these old vines with really warm places. Think about Spain. We think about Portugal, Australia, California. But there's this real variety of places on this list. And what's really struck me was that a lot of them were white grapes. And when I think about old vine wines... I immediately think about reds. Right, and yeah. maybe that's because here in America, what we see tends to be old vine Zinfandel. And then again, I also associate it with those like old gnarly Spanish grape vines that are like so old. But I, I really didn't didn't put it together that there would be white ones too. So I thought that was really eye-opening and, yeah. and pretty interesting. I agree with that. I just, like I said earlier, I never associated with, with New World. So Australia yeah, is considered New World and they started out right away with New World saying 1847. I'm thinking, in 1847, you know, France and they could talk in 1600s, 1400s. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was an interesting way to start. And then, yeah. they, then they moved to Italy, yep. Campania, saying 1800s again. Some of these old vines are up to eight feet tall, very low yields. And they're not actually in this region, these vines, they're not actually using the grapes. They're using the buds to then produce other vines. Right. So this is almost being used like a nursery. So they are taking cuttings from these ancient vines and then they are developing growing new plants from these cuttings and i was and i thought that that was such a wonderful thing to do because obviously this particular plant in this particular environment has something going for it whether it's strong genetics or whether it's just perfectly suited to where it is growing so hey you know let's take advantage of that and and develop more specific plants from this kind of mother plant so i thought that that was really 
really a wonderful way for them to continue the traditions of, hey, we really like this grape variety that we're using. It grows really well here. Let's continue to grow this particular type. So I thought that was cool. Yeah. Interesting. And that was Fiano, which is a white grape variety that grows pretty much only in Campania. Um, the next one was sort of a similar story going back to Greece here for me. Uh, this is on the island of Santorini. So the grape variety is Assyrtico, which is the white grape that is fairly common on the island of Santorini. And again, we're talking 1800s here. Um, the, the way that they grow these vines here is really different. They almost grow them so that they look like, like a potted plant. It's this it's very, very low to the ground. It's it's in like a circular vine arrangement. And they were saying for this one that it's the root system that is more the older part of the plant and that they'll let new vines sort of develop from the root system and will cut back some of the older wood, but that the plant itself is like 200 years old. Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned how they've grown. A lot of these islands, you know, Spanish islands, same thing, that they're underground, basically lower than the the level of the Mm -hmm. ground, and the grapes are actually at ground level. Because of the winds and the heat, they have to keep them lower to the ground. So it is a very interesting growing system. Yep, And it sounds like they do a similar thing with kind of keeping the root system alive with these in the country of Georgia, which also has a very, very, very long tradition of grape growing. I think this was one of the areas where wine grapes really started. And so some of these plants, again, are also centuries old and produce not a lot of grapes, but are are also used for, you know, taking some of these, these cuttings. But these wild, these were like tall as trees and just, you know, really amazing looking. There was... I was trying to look on the list. The first one they mentioned from California was what, San Benito County? There was a vineyard. I'd never heard of it. Lime. Lime kiln. Have you heard of it? Yeah, I hadn't. 1890s, which for California, is, I could I thought they could have used a little... I don't know. That's pretty old vine for California, yeah? I think. What was the... They mentioned uh, one in Oakville, but they were saying 1945. Oh, so in, they were, for Tokelon, yeah. Yeah, they were showing comparisons of, you know, what's considered old and what region, and then they moved to Oregon, which was 1977. You're thinking... Yeah. Well, compared to 1600s, right. 1970, but 1977 vine is an old vine, right? I mean, it's you, almost, but it's only Oregon, 40 years old. You know, for an but. Oregon, that's an old vine, right, right? Right. So you have to consider the region and the source of how they're using old vine. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that they did bring up the Tocolon Vineyard, the one in Napa, um, for their Sauvignon Blanc, because this is the original location for where Robert Mondavi developed his Fumé Blanc style of Sauvignon Blanc. So this, these are the original vines that went into the original Fumé Blanc. So I, I really thought that that was cool because they tied in sort of the history of the region and Mondavi and people of his generation were really the first ones to, you know, they were the ones who gave us our current California wine industry. So I, I, that was sort of a, a nod to the history of Napa in singling out this particular plot of old vine, Sauvignon Blanc. I thought that was cool. You mentioned, Kim, when you think old vine, you think reds. Yeah. Red rice. And so I so, so surprised by wh- all these whites. What's the one grape when you hear old vine in and, and U.S. you think people associate? Zinfandel. Zinfandel, yeah, exactly. I mean, they didn't bring up a whole lot of Zinfandel nothing. in this. Yeah, and yeah. that's what I think. I mean, you see old vine Zin a lot in the United States, and I, you don't see old vine Cab, or nope. it's mostly old vine Zin. Well, I think for something like Cabernet, where it does command 
a higher price point if you are especially if you're making you know napa cabernet it at some point the fact that an older vine starts producing less and less fruit even if that fruit is really good quality at the end of the day you still have to put a product on the market that's going to sell and pay the bills and you know keep your business up and running so you do sort of reach that threshold of okay what am i now sacrificing in quantity even if the quality might be better so i've read in numerous places that that is why we don't have a whole lot of these really older vineyards is because at some point whether the vine is 25 30 years old they really start to go downhill as far as their production amount so winemakers and you know grape growers would be like all right time to replant and okay you know i know it's 30 years old but for us that's the lifespan of the plant so that's kind of a little sad if you put a lot of stock in this romantic idea of these older vineyards but the reality of that definitely does come into play so i think especially for something like cap old vines be careful that's i guess my point to everybody is you see it doesn't mean anything in the united states so be careful if you like them do some research on it research You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Kim and Mark. You can find more information about myself at vinitaswineworks.com and more information about Mark at franklinliquors.com. So another uh, interesting article that we found was about finding the right wine expert for you to talk to, but it really went deeper than that. It was more of an investigation of different types of wine training and wine education that folks like Mark and myself go through because there are sort of different schools of wine education out there for wine professionals. And some are geared more towards writers. Others are geared more towards sommeliers. Others are geared more towards winemakers and winery owners. And a lot of it also has to do with, all right, who is putting out this program? Is it created by Americans? Is it created by French? Is it created by the British? And there are different emphasis points from all of these different programs. So I thought that this sort of experiment that happened in Canada, looked at one of actually two different styles of learning about wine and how that translated into how people then gave wine recommendations. Yeah, I was thrown off in this article, Kim, and it may surprise you. I had to read it a few times. (laughs) I did too. Starting out, they were saying, like you said, Kim, finding the right wine and how an expert's going to help you. And then it started going into, you know, there's the wine wall when you walk in the store and what expert is going to help you. And then it went into this study that they did. It didn't really, I don't know how it started to turn me, it went to a different direction, like Mm. you said, but they they had two groups. They had a British group that was trained one way, like you said, and a French group that was trained another way. They presented them a wine, and then they looked at what each group thought of the wine. And bottom line was, they all agreed at the quality level, which was a good thing. So they all agreed that the, the wine was the quality that they thought. So I thought that was a good thing, but it just brought to to note that everybody has a different idea or a different, and it's based on how they were trained to taste. Right. How they were trained to taste and then how they were trained to talk about it afterwards and to get that information across to a consumer. And that was where the real big difference sort of came about. It seemed like that the folks that were trained in the British method, which was the, it's called the WSET. So it's the Wine and Spirits Education Trust, and that is out of London. It's very rigorous and it's a lot of attention to facts and to details, but 
there is a very specific uh, focus on how you're supposed to taste things. So they were saying for the um, for the British method, you know, there was a little bit more of an emphasis by these people on fruity flavors and a little bit more about, I think, positive language about the wines as opposed to this French emphasized school where they spoke a little bit more about the savory characteristics about the of the wine and spent more time talking about the textures and the acidity and the tannins and maybe some elements of the wines that weren't using the most positive language that was kind of what I got out of it you know they were talking more about like the spice notes and more about you know bitter characteristics and things like that so I really think this comes down to a different way of communicating what you're experiencing in the glass, frankly. Yeah, two different systems of training that, like you said, one went into a little bit more depth than the other. And we talked about this in the past where certain people train you to ID things a little different, like salinity in wine, which other people mm-hmm. don't care what you think of a salinity and saltiness in wine. So the bottom line, how is this good for consumers? They were saying is they all agree what's a good wine is a good wine to them. So that should be to you. That's the way I was yeah. getting it. I mean, it's really what I think this came down to is any sort of professional wine training for people who are in the trade are going to help them be able to communicate better to you, the consumer, and help you pick out a better bottle of wine. So it really doesn't matter whether they're trained in an American method or a British method or a French method, as long as you have a rapport with an individual person who you can communicate with and that you kind of like the way that they are explaining wine to you and they, you know, they don't make you feel bad about it and they help you to explore and find some words to put to the wines that you like and that you don't like, that that is good. So it's one of those sort of knowledge is power did it bother you that they said expert not really no I was thinking, why not just say someone trained a wine? I, I don't know. I just, when they said expert, they kept like kind of quoting expert. Oh, oh the expert, I see. An expert's going to help you. I would rather them just say someone with some wine knowledge. Hmm. Oh, I mean, they they both didn't. See, I don't know. Yeah, it just kind of it didn't really me, bother me. Thing, but I, mean, I'm, I was just yeah. curious with that. <laughs> no, it didn't. It didn't really, uh, that didn't throw me too much. You've been listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and thank you for joining us today. We've been your hosts, Kim, Simone, and Mark Lindsay. If you'd like to find out more information about our show, we are on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. And if you want to find our past episodes, you can find us on iTunes at The Wonderful World of Wine. Cheers. Wine, wine, wine.